Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning, please, and find your way to the Gospel of John, the third chapter, John chapter 3. John states his purpose for writing this Gospel in the 20th chapter in the 31st verse. He's not shy about the purpose at all. John says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John jumps right in, if you will, by declaring who Jesus is. In John chapter 1, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the eternal word, took upon himself the form of a man, and John declares that in John chapter 1. And then he begins to display the deity of Christ. In John chapter 2, he shows Jesus doing his first miracle, turning the water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana. In chapter 2, he, for the first time, cleanses the temple in Jerusalem. We've turned to John chapter 3 this morning to see how John continues to display the deity of Christ. And in John chapter 3, there are two interviews There's an entrance interview and there's an exit interview. The entrance interview is an interview that happens at night with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. There's an exit interview. That exit interview is what we considered this morning, the last verses of John chapter 3, help us to understand the fading ministry of John the Baptist, who descends downward in order to be elevated by the comment that Jesus Christ will make about him, saying he's the greatest that ever lived. We look at John's exit interview in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. A man who descends into greatness, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. And John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of the disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that's of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. What he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. I'd like to focus this morning on the text that we've read as we discover the importance of humility, indeed, to discover what John demonstrates in his life, 
that the way up is down. The way up is down. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into His Word this morning. Father, this morning we know that there are those in this room today who have traveled much, who have been with family. Lord, we've celebrated a holiday, and now as we awaken on this Your day, I pray that You'd awaken our hearts to the truth of Your Word. Lord, You are a great God and greatly to be praised. And today, Lord, we deal with a theme that every single one of us needs to hear, and I need to hear as well. So, Lord, I pray that You would help us to evaluate our lives in light of Your greatness, that You would humble us, that You help us to see indeed that the way up is down, that You would help us as Christians in a world so filled with pride and egotism to be those who would be simply servants sent by a good master to share a good word that others too could join us in the place where night will never come and pain will be gone. Bless the conversation in your word this morning, Lord, and help your name to be glorified in this place, and we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. After the death of John the Baptist, Jesus himself provided the epitaph for John, when in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 11, Jesus says, Among them born of women, there's none greater than John. So according to the testimony of Jesus, John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. Now, of course, we're going to remove Jesus from that equation. But John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived. John chapter 3 is presenting a contrast in conversation for us. The first conversation is between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a wealthy, prestigious, powerful rabbi. He would have been dressed in the fine garments of the Pharisees. And then we have, beginning here in verse 22, a conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples. John the Baptist was a poor, ridiculed, reclusive prophet who wore camel skins and a leather girdle and ate locusts and wild honey. Nicodemus would have been considered in his day a very honorable man. Nicodemus asked a question, how can these things be? John the Baptist was a very humble man who declares he must increase, but I must decrease. In John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36, we see a message that all of us need to review often, and that message is this, the way up is always down. The way up is always down. Muhammad Ali was on an airplane years ago. While on that airplane, the announcement was made, please buckle up. While the lady who was in charge of making sure everyone was buckled up came by Muhammad Ali, she noticed that he wasn't buckled up. And she said, I'm sorry, sir, but you're going to have to buckle your seatbelt. And he looked at her and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the woman immediately looked at him and said, yes, and Superman doesn't fly in airplanes. He can fly by himself. Buckle your belt. Good response. Ali learned something that all of us need to learn, that the way up is down. You see, of all the sins that we commit, God hates the sin of pride most. In Proverbs chapter 6, the Word of God says in verse 16, these six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. And, and the list begins with a proud look. 
Pride is the very first sin. It was Lucifer who said, according to Isaiah 14, I will be like the Most High God. And then he tempted the woman in Genesis chapter 3, saying, You will be as God, knowing good and evil. Pride is a pervasive, and it's an often promoted sin. Truth is, our world is run by proud people who promote pride as a virtue. I'm not saying that people go around telling their children, now learn to be proud, learn to be proud. But the reality is, we teach one another often in our culture to love yourself. We live in the land of the love yourself cult. Being taught to love yourself is an inflaming of pride in ways that generations before us have never known. In fact, evangelical author Walter Trobisch in his book, Love Yourself, actually says this, without self-love, there can be no love for others. You cannot love your neighbor, you cannot love God unless you first love yourself. So rather than seeing the the sins of child abuse, suicide, and abortion as sins against the holy God, Trobisch goes on to explain in his book that these sins really trace back to the basic sin, which is failure to love yourself. We become so used to that argument that we've almost become desensitized to it. That's worldly wisdom, folks. But the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And how will those perilous times be known? Men will be lovers of themselves. They will be proud and boasters and blasphemers and disobedient to parents. We all need to be warned about the awful self-love cult. The Bible stands against it. In fact, in James 4 and verse 6 we read, God resisteth the proud but gives grace to the humble. In James chapter 4 and verse 10, humble yourselves therefore in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, God resisteth the proud. Again, he gives grace to the humble. Jesus said in Matthew 20 and verse 26, whoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. Years ago, Charles Schultz was drawing one of his peanuts, cartoon strips. He focused in on Linus. I love Linus. Linus was speaking to Charlie Brown, and as Linus speaks to Charlie Brown in his typical wisdom, he says, when I get big, I'm going to be a humble little country doctor. I'll live in the city, and every morning, I'll climb into my little sports car and zoom into the country. Then I'll start healing people for miles around. I'll be a world-famous, humble little doctor. The truth is, humility doesn't come so easily. If it did, the Bible wouldn't say so much about it. But the Bible has a great deal to say about humility and about the danger of pride. We all need to discover that the way up is down. All of us need to be able to say with John in verse 30 of the chapter that we read this morning, he must increase and I must decrease. I want us to take some time this morning and zero in on the words that are found here in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. John 3, beginning in verse 22. Because I find in this passage three ways to prevent pride in order to foster humility. We're going to discover that humility requires that you and I recognize three things. First, we need to recognize the peril of pride. And then, we need to recognize the plan of God for our lives. 
And finally, we need to recognize the person of Christ. These things seem to be the keys to the humility that John made so evident in his life. First, you need to recognize the peril of pride. Look with me quickly at verses 22 to 26. Almost invisibly, verse 22 begins with these words, after these things, after what things? Well, Jesus and his disciples had been ministering in Jerusalem. Jesus had recently cleansed the temple. He had recently had a conversation with the greatest rabbi of his times, Nicodemus. Now, our Lord is in the Judean wilderness. He's with his disciples. And we read in verse 22, he was there in Judea and he was with them baptizing. Now, to understand what was happening in verse 22, you have to look over at chapter 4 and verse 2. In chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, it says, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. In other words, Jesus baptized his disciples. Back here in chapter 3 and verse 22, his disciples were baptizing others. It's a good thing, isn't it? Can you imagine the bragging rights people would have had? Were Jesus to have baptized multitudes of people in the Judean wilderness? Paul avoided the temptation of that type of situation in the city of Corinth. He was able to write to the Corinthians and say to them in chapter 1 and verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you. In verse 23, we read, and John was also baptizing in a place called Anon near Salem. Now, we don't know where that is today, but that's where he was then. And why was he there? Because there was much water there. You see, biblical baptism required a lot of water. The very word baptizo means to dip or to immerse or to submerge or to plunge. In Matthew chapter 3, the Bible says Jesus, when he was baptized, came up straightway out of the water. And most of us would agree to come up out of the water, you have to first go into the water. In the book of Acts chapter 8, the Bible tells us of the baptism of an Ethiopian eunuch. And the Bible tells us Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch went down into the water and they both came up out of the water. Biblical baptism, you see, is always by immersion. And biblical baptism is always with the consent of the one who is being baptized, and more than the consent, with their desire to share a testimony. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized every one of you. First repentance, then baptism. First belief, then baptism. Baptism by immersion is believer's baptism. Now the popist have not taught that. Sadly, the Reformers did not come out far enough, but the Bible is clear on the topic of baptism. So let me encourage you, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and you've not yet been baptized, you need to be baptized. But let me also say to you, baptism does not save. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved is the gospel. Salvation is by putting your faith in Christ, but baptism shows the world that you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior. Eternal life begins with salvation, not baptism. Now, John, verse 24, not the gospel writer here, but John the Baptist was not yet cast into prison. So this is very early in the ministry of the Lord. Now, pay special attention to verses 25 and verse 26. There's a question that arises between John's disciples and the Jews. It says there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. So the baptism of John the Baptist was much like the 
Hebrew baptisms of the Old Testament. It was a ceremonial baptism picturing a purifying. Notice here that the discussion that arose was not between John's disciples and the disciples of Jesus, but the discussion that arose was between John's disciples and the Jews, and they were talking about purifying, and now come the disciples of John to John. And they say, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all come to him. The conversation between the disciples of John the Baptist and the Jews now put a wedge, it seems, between the disciples of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. And so they're bringing their question to John the Baptist. And they're bringing a question that may threaten the ministry of John the Baptist and threaten the ministry of Jesus. They're asking a question about baptism. Why are they asking it? They've just been involved with this conversation with the Jews who were saying something like this, hey, you think John the Baptist is so great and all these people are coming to him. If he's so great, why are people now leaving him to get baptized by Jesus? Wasn't John's baptism good enough? An attention point has arisen. That tension has infected the disciples of John the Baptist with a virus of Pride, not, not their own personal pride, but pride especially of their master, John the Baptist. So they come to him saying, this one who was with you when we were on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, he's now baptizing himself. A partisan spirit has raised its ugly head. It's infected the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist could easily fall prey to pride. Because embedded in these words, there's a division. He that was with you beyond Jordan, there's the possibility of disloyalty. The one who testif you testified about, there's the possibility of denominationalism. That one now, is, he's got his own following and they're all following after him. In other words, the disciples of John the Baptist are telling John the Baptist that Jesus may have taken advantage of his relationship with John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized Jesus, but now is Jesus being disloyal to John the Baptist, and how will John the Baptist respond? Here's the tension point, and it's emphasized in the end of verse 26. Did you see it? All men come to him. Everybody? Big crowds are now coming to Jesus. How will John the Baptist respond? Here's how he responds. He must increase, and I must decrease. He recognizes immediately the peril of pride, and he bypasses it. Listen, where there's a schismatic spirit, where there's a partisan spirit, there's always pride. The Word of God says in Proverbs 13 and verse 10, only by pride comes contention. If you're desiring to be popular, if you're living your life to be powerful, if you're living your life to have the accolades of others, and suddenly you find that you're not so popular, you're not so powerful, you're not so well thought of, there can be a tendency for pride to be hurt. In John chapter 3, Satan is using John's own disciples to poke at his pride. Would John succumb to a partisan spirit? Would John be offended that his popularity is waning? No, not at all. He's going to give evidence of a, a gracious, humble spirit desiring Jesus to be honored, desiring Jesus to accept the crowds, and desiring His light to be dimmed. 
Mahatma Gandhi was, of course, a well-known Hindu leader of the Indian people. Gandhi read the Gospels when he was a college student. He read the Gospels and he thought he found in the Gospels the cure to the Hindu caste system. And he was very intrigued by it, so intrigued by it that he decided, I'm going to become a Christian because Christianity can destroy the caste system. So he actually went to a church where he asked the minister of the church to help him become a Christian. When he went to the church, he was told he could not sit in any of the seats because after all, his clothing was the clothing of the humble. He was told to wait in line to ask a question of the minister because after all, he was not a person of great value. He was treated that way in a church, and he went out of the church, and he actually said, if Christians have caste also, what's the difference? I might as well remain a Hindu. And he did. Have you ever wondered how many people have been turned away from the Lord because of the pride of his people? John turned people to the Lord, and he recognized the peril of pride. Proverbs says in chapter 29, a man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in heart. There are many, and some here today, who need to actually pray, Lord, help me recognize the peril of pride and help me recognize your perfect plan for my life and live according to that plan. In the text to which we've turned this morning, John the Baptist was great. He was great because he recognized the peril of pride, and he was great because he recognized God's perfect plan for his life. He wanted to walk humbly before his God. John presents a model to us. He was crystal clear about what God wanted him to do. I want you to look with me at verses 27 through 30. And as we look at these familiar verses, four truths ought to pop off the page and challenge every one of us. You must recognize the plan of God for your life. So truth number one is this, you need to recognize your dependence, your dependence. In verse 27, John the Baptist says, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. He's speaking in the context of the crowds that are now dissipating and the crowds that are now going over to Jesus. But he makes this fabulous statement, a man can receive nothing except it be given to him from heaven. Remember in Matthew chapter 3, all Jerusalem and all Judea and the regions round about all were following John the Baptist, and now the crowds that once came to hear him, the crowds that once came to be baptized of him, now they're spilling away. But John says, hey, listen, folks, I don't take credit for the crowds who once followed me. Those crowds followed me as a demonstration of God's purpose for my life. They followed me not because of my own power. John is recognizing his dependence on God. How many of us need to recognize that very dependence? Christian, are you popular? Are you powerful? Are you prestigious? There's a convicting question that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, what hast thou that thou didst not receive? And if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou didst not receive it? You'll never know true humility in your life until you understand your dependence on God. We live in an era of independence, but all of us in truth are dependent. John Wyatt, a professor of ethics at the University College Hospital in London, 
made a striking statement when he said, God's design for our lives is that we should be dependent. Then he said, we come into this world totally dependent on the love, the care, and the protection of others. We go through a phase in life when other people depend on us. And most of us will go out of this world totally dependent on the love and the care of others. Yet, he says, people, including Christians, are often heard to say, I don't want to be a burden on anyone else. I'm happy to carry on living so long as I can look after myself, so long as I'm not a burden on someone else. If I become a burden, I'd rather die. But why it continues, this is wrong. We are all designed to be a burden on others. We are designed to be a burden on others from our birth. And the life of the family, including the life of the local church family, should be one of mutual burdensomeness. We're called upon to bear one another's burdens. Christ himself took on the dignity of dependence. As a baby, he was cared for by his mother, who fed him, who wiped his bottom, who picked him up when he fell down. And he never lost his divine dignity. At the end of his life, on a cross, dying for your sins and for mine, his hands were spiked to the cross and his feet spiked through. He commended his spirit to the Father and his disciples in a dignified manner, buried his body when his flesh had become flaccid. Life is a journey of dependence. Dependence. You will never come to the point of understanding humility until you first begin by understanding, I am very, very dependent. John states that initially in verse 27, a man can receive nothing except to be given to him from heaven. Truth number two, you must fulfill your duty. In verse 28, John says, you yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. Now, the purpose of John's life had been prophesied before he was born. In Isaiah chapter 40, he was said to be a voice of one crying in the wilderness. In Malachi chapter 3, John was the messenger who prepared the way of the Lord. And John recognized that the duty of his life was to prepare the way for the Savior. And he set about to do what God had him to do. Those who walk humbly before their God will recognize their dependence on God and the duty that God has called them to do. Now, your duty may be to witness to your neighbor. Your duty may be to build a business that supports ministry for the Lord. Your duty may be to be a parent who makes a difference in the life of a child. All of us are uniquely made and uniquely made to fulfill a duty that God gives to us. And every God-given duty is honorable. And so John recognizes that when John says... Man can receive nothing except it be given, and you yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He recognized his duty. If you would be humble and maintain a spirit of humility, there's a third truth in this text that we need to learn, and that's this. You need to know the source of your delight. The source of your delight. John the Baptist makes an amazing comparison in verse 29 when he says, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. 
What's he talking about? Well, in a Jewish wedding feast, the person most in charge was the bridegroom. Sorry, brides. You see those grooms in Jesus' time paging through those you know, wedding magazines and preparing for their weddings. But they were in charge. They were the responsible party. And the wise groom would get someone that we call him the best man today. But in the Hebrew times, the times of the Lord, they were called the Shosh Ben. The Shosh Ben was the best man. The Shosh Ben was the chief planner. He was the MC. He was the coordinator. All rolled into one. The Shosh Ben. In verse 29, John the Baptist says, I am the Shosh Ben of the Savior. He wants the disciples to know the source of his delight is the voice of the bridegroom. He says, he heareth him and he rejoices greatly because the bridegroom's voice. That's how my joy is fulfilled. Those who walk humbly before their God understand there's a voice that we want to hear. Well done. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, Satan's going to want to distract you from hearing that well done. He's going to put all kinds of temptations in your ways. He's going to promise you delights and bring to you despair. But John the Baptist is simply saying, I know the source of my delight. I am a Shosh Ben. I am the one who prepares this wedding feast. And when the voice of the bridegroom, my Savior, is happy, then I too am happy. Truth number four in this passage You need to be able to express the desire of your heart. You need to be able to express the desire of your heart if you be humble in a very simple, succinct way. John can. He says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. These are the truths that John lived. These are the truths that John, the greatest man who ever lived, would pass on to others. Truths about humility. Hudson Taylor was a Missionary to China, he left his comfortable homeland in England and went to China and lived as a Chinaman in order to reach the Chinese for Christ. He became very famous for his sacrifice and for his ministry. He served there for 51 years. Once he was traveling to Melbourne, Australia, and he was being introduced before a great gathering as a world-famous missionary, a man of great accomplishment, a wonderful and great man, he heard this fabulous introduction. He stood up embarrassed. He looked around the people who'd gathered there to hear him speak, and he began by saying this, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a little servant of an illustrious master. Like John the Baptist, Hudson Taylor had but one desire of heart. He wanted Christ to increase. He wanted himself to decrease. So here are four truths that need to be considered carefully if we would walk humbly. First, I am dependent. Second, I have a duty that God has given me to do. Third, I find the voice of the Savior to be my greatest delight. I want Him to be pleased. And finally, I want this desire to be fulfilled in my life. I want Him to increase. I want myself to decrease. You see, the way up is down. You understand then that there's a peril of pride to be avoided. And there's a plan of God for every one of our lives. And John the Baptist finds himself centered, finds himself humbled, finds his perspective in what he is about to share, verses 31 to 36. 
And John the Baptist, as he shares, teaches us one final thing that we ought to consider, one final perspective that ought to be ours, and that's this. You need to recognize the person of Jesus Christ. There's no platform for humility. There's no pathway for humility for those who don't recognize the greatness of the person of Jesus Christ. And in verses 31 to 36, I want you to see very quickly with me this morning how well developed John the Baptist's Christology was, if you will. How well John understood who Jesus was. He shares very quickly with his disciples five facts about Jesus that I want to share with you this morning. Here's the first fact. He recognizes that Jesus is of heavenly origin. When he says in verse 31, he that cometh from above is above all. Now, John the Baptist's birth had been prophesied. He was, after all, the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. He was born with a purpose to be the one who would go before the Savior. But John the Baptist says in verse 31, he that cometh from above is above all. Jesus is of heavenly origin. He that is of the earth, Greek word there, G-E, we get our word geology or geometry, earthy, not cosmos. He chooses a word that is planetary. He says, we are all of this planet, but I'm talking about one who is of heaven. The one who is of heavenly origin is Jesus alone, and Jesus is going to confirm that in this gospel. In John chapter 6 and verse 33, Jesus is going to say, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. In John 8 and verse 42, Jesus says, I proceed and I come forth from God. You and I don't. We're all earthly. But Jesus is the only person who's come down from heaven. What a humbling thought for John and what a humbling thought for you and for me. John recognizes the person of Jesus. Fact number two. That Jesus possesses supernatural knowledge, and you and I do not possess such supernatural knowledge. In verse 31, John the Baptist says, He that is of the earth speaketh of the earth, but he that cometh from, he from heaven is above all. How do we know? Look at verse 32. For what he hath seen and heard, that is in heaven, that he testifies. Our Lord's Amazing, supernatural, divine knowledge has already been made manifest to John the Baptist. Back in John 2 and verse 25, we read, He needed not that any should testify of man. He knew what was in man. John knew this. In fact, the third fact that John reveals to his disciples is this, that Jesus is truth. For all those who are seeking to know truth, verses 33 and verse 34, John the Baptist says something that is very important. He just tells his disciples, you need to recognize the person of Jesus. You need to understand his heavenly origin. You need to understand his supernatural knowledge. And then you need to understand that he is truth. He says now, he that hath received his testimony has set to this seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. Since he's from God, he is true. Romans 3 says in verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. We live in a generation where all truth is relative. Your truth is as good as my truth. And John the Baptist cuts to the chase and says, that's not the way it is. You'll never know a life of true humility until you understand this truly, that Jesus is truth. In fact, John the Baptist goes further. He says, Jesus is God. He puts Jesus equal now to the Spirit it seems John the Baptist is a Trinitarian. 
He makes him equal to the Spirit and to the Father when he says in verse 34 and 35, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure to him. In other words, he doesn't just have a partial filling of the Spirit. (laughs) He is full of the Spirit. Verse 35, the Father loveth the Son, hath given everything to his hand. The Father, sovereign God who created everything, has placed everything in the hands of the only one who is worthy to oversee everything, and that one is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. And then he says in verse 36, you need to know this, Jesus is the source of eternal life. John the Baptist shares a warning with his disciples, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God is upon him. If you accept Jesus, you can have everlasting life. If you reject Jesus, you're condemned, he says, to eternal death. How can I cultivate in my heart, how can I cultivate in my heart a spirit of humility? For God resisteth the proud and gives grace to the humble. Well, the greatest man who ever lived, John the Baptist, who is an example of humility, gives to us a pattern. He understood first the peril of pride, and he sidestepped it whenever he saw that divisive schismatic spirit that gave evidence that only by pride comes contention. How can I cultivate in my life a spirit of humility? I understand the plan of God in my life, that I must be dependent that I have a duty that he's called upon me to do, that I can delight only when I hear the voice of the bridegroom. My desire, after all, is to hear him say, well done. And then finally, I recognize the person of Christ, and I'm certainly not on his level. He's the altogether lovely one. Charles Spurgeon was a young pastor of a humble church in Water Beach, England, Thatch roof building, humble villagers. God's blessing was upon his ministry there, but his father felt that Charles could do better. And so his father said, Charles, you need to go to college. So an appointment was made for Charles Spurgeon to consider going to college at a college called Stepney in London. Spurgeon went to the appointment. He came down the sidewalk of a fabulous home. He was led into the home by one of the servants of the people who owned the home. He was placed in one room near a fireplace. He waited and he waited and he waited and he waited. He was supposed to meet Dr. Angus, the, the head teacher of Stepney College. And the, finally, it got so late it was embarrassing. And Spurgeon got up and said to the servant, I was supposed to meet with Dr. Angus, but apparently he hasn't shown up. And the servant said, oh, I am so sorry. It's my mistake. I didn't know he was coming to meet you, and I put him in a different room, and he waited a long time, and he, all, he, he finally left. Spurgeon was so disappointed. His dreams of college had been dashed. He walked down the sidewalk of the house where that appointment was supposed to take place, and he said it was as if God was speaking from heaven to his soul. And the verse that came to mind was this, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Spurgeon gave testimony. It was then that God gave him a contented heart to be humble servant of God wherever God would put him. And from there, many of you know the rest of the story. God would make him the most fabulous minister in all of England. His writings would be more voluminous than the Encyclopedia Britannica. His sermons would be published around the world. But first, he had to come to this place to recognize 
I'm but a servant of a great God. Dear friend, this morning, don't let the world allure you into believing that loving yourself and fostering a spirit of pride can make you a great servant of God. Great servants of God understand the peril of pride. They recognize the plan of God for their lives and accept that plan. And they recognize the person of Christ and they wish to follow after Him. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.